The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Word of God, or the people of God. Let's pray. We're grateful, God, for the privilege to be able to behold you, to come into your presence, to adore you, to worship you as your children. And with all the baggage we brought into here today, all the stuff of the previous week we carried into this room today, Lord, we pray that you might help us to put those things aside and focus on you and you alone. What you're saying to us, what you're doing in us, And we pray, Father, that as your church is gathered, that you might empower us in such a way that Monday through Saturday of next week, we'll be the church out there, bringing salt and light and desiring to see lives changed and being bold in our witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no better time than this week for us to step forward, share the truth of the blood of Jesus spilt for us, your church, 
We know that there are members of our fellowship who are not well. And we pray, Lord, for your healing power in their lives. To bring comfort to them, that you would use us as church members to care for those that are sick, to care for our seniors, our homebound. Be diligent in that. We pray, Lord, for this dark world that we're a part of, that you might uh, intervene in the crises in the world, that our leaders, whether they know it or not, might be guided by your wisdom and the decisions that they make, that you would bless our president and his family, our governor and his family, our mayor and his family, those, Lord, that you've placed above us many times, if not most times, we wonder why, but you do. And so we trust you to do what's best and what's good and what's right. And we'll trust you to do a work in the lives of those that you've placed above us as well. We pray for our military, our soldiers, those who are in harm's way, and ask, Lord, for your safety and protection. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter's letter. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not only to write this, but to communicate it to our hearts. Do that now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We spoke some about last week about the work we have to do as believers to get us to where we have some assurance in our lives. That long list of things we're supposed to be doing, right? If you were here last week. If you weren't, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I was reminded, though, when I was reading that, you know, um, Martin Luther's, uh, it's my Martin Luther quote of the day. Um, Martin Luther's um, emphasis on justification by faith alone. He had some trouble with James, who would say, faith without works is dead. And one of his most famous quotes is when, when reading James, Luther said, um, sometimes I get so mad I just want to throw Jimmy in the fire. You didn't know Jimmy was a nickname for James 500 years ago, but it was apparently. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was a protege of um, Martin Luther. He says it a little better. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by faith that remains alone. And so that's what we did when we, last week, when we looked at verses 5 through 7, we saw these commands for this very reason. For what very reason? Well, verses 3 and 4, or 1 through 4. Pastor Greg preached a couple messages uh, on those uh, four verses because of these God-given blessings, his, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness and so on. All the promises of Scripture. Because of 
because of that, because God has done that, God has given us those blessings, we can't be indifferent. We can't be self-satisfied. And so for that very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patience and on and on and on. So Peter reminds, after after reminding us from what Pastor Greg, the questions he answered in those two messages of what's a Christian, what does it what does it mean to know Christ? What are the blessings that come from knowing Christ? Well, the blessings that come from knowing Christ, well, uh, we've escaped the corruption that's in the world, verse, um, verse uh, 4. Uh, verse 2, we have grace and peace multiplied to us. Verse 3, all things that pertain to life and godliness we have. Verse 4, he's granted to us precious and very great promises. And also at the end of verse 4, we're partakers of the divine nature. Well, what is that? Well, the divine nature, some of it, some of it is virtue or goodness or or, or moral uh, excellence. I think one one, uh, translation translated that, our knowledge, or self-control, or steadfastness, or godliness, or brotherly affection, or love. That's, that's, that's those things. That's that divine nature at work in us. But then he said, for that reason, make every effort. You've got to work at it. God doesn't just pour these things into us passively so that uh, we, we can sit back in the recliner and, and be godly. No, we're to give all diligence. God acts, then we work. It's not God, it's not we work, then God acts. That's a whole other religion. That's almost every other religion. But it's God acts, then we work. And Peter's writing to these people that we'll see in chapter 2. He's writing to these people that, that are going to be tempted to fall under the teaching of the false teachers. Some of them are even going to fall to become, to become false teachers. He wants to emphasize the importance of a godly nature so that that won't happen. You make effort in these virtues. You make effort in goodness. You make effort in knowledge. It's intellectual knowledge there. Once you believe and trusted in what you're doing, you're adding these things to your faith. So once you've believed and trusted, once you have the gift of faith, you take the diligent step of applying these other things to your life. Saturday a week ago, I ran this little race called the Bridge Run. You might have heard of it. I thought the the the, the providential blessing of having to run that race was that Judy and I spent ten days in the mountains of North Carolina prior to that race. It just happened that way. But getting up every morning, walking up and running up and down those hills up in the mountains, got my muscles ready for that bridge. Sort of. But for those muscles to stay in shape, I've got to keep on running those hills. And someone said, faith is like a muscle. You either strengthen it or it atrophies. There's no standing still when it comes to muscles. 
you either strengthen it or it atrophies. You either work your muscles or you decline. Faith works that way. And Peter points this out clearly in this passage. You don't plateau. You're either growing in your faith. You're, even, you're either adding these things to your faith or you're going backward. Later, we'll see the word fall. And the range of this list demonstrates that God wants us to be well-rounded believers. We can't be incomplete in our Christian life. So that was last week's sermon in a nutshell. And there are three benefits when we apply these things to our faith. There are three benefits. First, fruitfulness. Second, vision. And third, security. Now, Peter uses one of them in the negative sense, but I'll just make them all positive. Fruitfulness, vision, and security. For verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you diligently um, pursue these things, you won't be ineffective. How many of if I had a, if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you would raise your hand this morning? I don't do it. How many of you would raise your hand and say, "Are you effective in your witness or in your walk with Christ?" I might not see a lot of hands, but diligently pursuing these things. You won't be ineffective. You won't be inactive. Synonym as such to unfruitful. Modern translations have translated that lazy or empty. I I like New American Standards um, use of the word useless. You see that? For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being useless. And unfruitful, unproductive. If these things are not in your life, you're going to look pretty much like any other unbeliever out there on the street. We continue to grow these qualities and grow them fruitful. Grow these qualities in our lives. They are increasing in us. See that increasing? You don't... They either get stronger or atrophy. And so these things are increasing. We grow in grace. Failure to do so makes us useless. Not only makes us useless, it causes us to fail in our communication of the gospel. Communicating the gospel in this life. So even though we've received everything... Necessary for godly living through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're climbing that ladder of faith. We're getting on the steps of virtue and knowledge and godliness and steadfastness and all those things. They reveal fruit in the life of the true child of God. Because moving on as a Christian reveals a longing for those things in our hearts and lives. And it's vital that we stay in the Word 
so that we might move on. Progressive growth. Progressive growth will stop many, most, if not all, from becoming ineffective, unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord. Jesus, in one of his parables in Matthew 13:22, said, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and proves unfruitful. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't you want to be... They, not having those things keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Don't you want to be effective and fruitful? Don't you want to be effective and fruitful in your walk? In your everyday life? The first benefit is... Fruitfulness, And we can learn from the teacher himself in John 15, 4 and 5. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is uh, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Moffat, in his trans, translation, I, I like that translation um, to read. Moffat's translation says, they, those things, those things we're, talking, we're calling those things. He says, they render you active and fruitful. Instead of not having them makes you ineffective and unfruitful, either they render you active and fruitful. This kind of spiritual living produces a spiritual harvest in our lives. I find it interesting, too, that many, if not most Christians, we want fruit from our lives, from our Christian wall, but we, under, we fail to understand that it and it comes from some prior commitment to action. We're much more willing to pray, to pray, God work through me, than we are to pray, God work in me, aren't we? We say we want change in the world. We want God to use us to bring change to the world. But then when change comes, we resist it. <coughs> Effective change follows that decision. What is that decision? For this very reason, make every effort. Because if we don't, we're ineffective, useless, lazy, unfruitful. And the end of that verse, he said, unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> In verses 2 and 3, we understand knowledge is something that the believer already possesses, and that's the same word here. It's not the same word that we see in verse 5, or a form of it. That meaning more intellectual knowledge. Here we're talking about a knowledge that we have that's given to us, a knowledge that the believer already possesses. The knowledge that bears fruit. 
We are very much a part of the fruit-bearing process. Warren Wearsby says, Some of the most effective Christians I have known are people without dramatic talents and special abilities or even exciting personalities. Yet God has used them in a marvelous way. Why? Because they're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They have the kind of character and conduct that God can trust with blessing. They are fruitful because they're faithful. They're effective because they're growing in their Christian experience. And so he says fruitful or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is that promise that we've been given. Believers who have that divine nature, that list... There are many, many other things we could add to that list. But believers who have that have observable characteristics in their lives. They have these Christian qualities we see in verses 5 and 7. They have these qualities and they are increasing, we see in verse 8. They're useful and they're faithful in their service to the Lord, we see in verse 8. And they live out that true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second benefit we see from living out these, not only fruitfulness, but vision. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, if you try to figure out what the Holy Spirit through Peter meant by near, so nearsighted that he's blind, um, you you'll scratch your head. And every single commentary that you read talking about that comes up with a different explanation of what he means by so nearsighted that he's blind. There's so many suggestions out there. Some say, well, you're nearsighted, you squint, and you squint so hard you can't see anymore. That That could be. Uh, the word is myopazon, which is what we get our word myopia from. And it only occurs here. It's the only time it's in the New Testament. And it could be that a, a believer with spiritual myopia is not magnifying the grace of God. And since his life is not uh, experiencing our revealing these qualities we see in 5 through 7, he seems to be spiritually blind. Maybe he's been lost. A professing Christian who's missing these virtues is unable to discern his spiritual condition, blind to his spiritual condition. And if you're blind to your spiritual condition, you have no assurance whatsoever of your salvation. If we don't have these things in our lives now, then he says what? We've forgotten, nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Forgotten that he's a believer. Is it possible? 
Is it possible to forget all those precious promises? Is it possible to forget what God has done for us? Is it possible to forget the depths of Christ's love for us? That's why we have this remembrance this week, Holy Week. It's what it's all about. Not just once a year, though. But it's why this time of year is on the church calendar that we not forget. And we remember the cross, the death, the resurrection of Christ. It's why we tell the gospel to ourselves daily. Can you really forget you were cleansed from your sins? What I think that happens is that when we lack those things we see in verses 5 through 7, we would fall into, remember I said, you're either increasing or you're going backwards. Atrophy. And so when we lack these things in our lives, we fall back to our own sinful life. And those sins, those old sins in our lives, blind us to what God has done for us in Christ. Something's going to fill the void. It's either your sinful ways or it's goodness, knowledge, steadfastness, patience, those things. We stop short-sightedness by exercising these qualities in our lives diligently. We see further into the future of what God has planned on us and we've not forgotten. We diligently apply these things to our lives. John MacArthur says that the failure to pursue these spiritual virtues will create spiritual amnesia. And if you're that person, if you're that person unable to discern your spiritual condition, you'll have no confidence in your profession of faith. You'll have no assurance whatsoever in your profession of faith. If we forget what God has done for us, we will not be excited to share Christ with others. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been cleansed, we've been forgiven. God has opened our eyes so that we can see. Let's not forget what He has done. Rather, cultivate gratitude in our hearts and cultivate these things that we've listed. Sharpen our spiritual vision by increasing in these things so that we might see the blessings of God in our lives. Life's too brief. The needs of the world too great for God's people to be walking around with their eyes closed. It's a serious thing. If we relate his use of nearsightedness simply to mean seeing what is close at hand more clearly than what we see at a distance, in this case, the emphasis will be on seeing those things that are immediate for our personal gratification while losing sight 
of what God has in store for us in the future. It's the tendency of believers. The glories of heaven fade away and the present world gets in the way. Those things are most real that we think about most, right? What do you think about most? Is it virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love? Or is it all that other stuff? The world presses in and makes us forget we we belong to the world to come. Remember that? 1 Peter 1, one to those who are elect exiles, but we forget. We're mem- we, we belong to the world to come. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through this world. And oh, how soon we forget. We want to grab onto it. We want to hang on to it. The world makes us forget, and we're just pilgrims passing through. And not only is the stagnant believer unfruitful and blind, he's forgotten, he's been cleansed from his former sins. It's just too easy to forget. The Laodicean church was marked by this blindness of their past blessings. Revelation 3, 17, 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To remember our cleansing is to continue to be grateful for our forgiveness. And Peter is not just, remember this, he's not just giving good advice to faithful followers of of Jesus Christ. He's anticipating chapter 2 and he's anticipating the attack of the false teachers. You, got, you, you can't lose sight of what God has done for you. You've got to make diligent effort to apply these things to your life because those false teachers are coming and they're going to attack and some of you are going to fall because you didn't apply this. Some of you are going to turn on the TV and watch those crazy nuts that preach on there. Fruitfulness, vision, security. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Are you sure? Are you sure? Do you have that assurance? Do you never doubt Make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be all the more diligent, all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. How can we be sure that God called us? How can we be sure that we are of the elect? How can I lose all doubt that I'm saved? By applying to my life faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, love. Those are heart matters. 
If I'm increasing those things, I can rest assured God has saved me. It shows that we are being, we, we are being conformed into the image of His Son. That's why what, what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's why He wrote it. So that those who, so the elect might be conformed to the image of His Son. John Piper said, the confirmation of your election is your progress in sanctification. God predestined all the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ. So reassuring evidence of your election is Christ-likeness. Now, it's possible for an unsaved person to be moral and it's possible for an unsaved person to do a lot of religious things because churches are full of unsaved people. But the, these things that Peter's talking about are matters of the heart, evidence that one has been born again. If we're called, just simply put, if we're called, if we're of the elect, we've been regenerated, we're, we're um We've been born again. If we're born again, it shows by the way we live. It's just really that simple. Take a look at it from another direction. He says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The opposite, if you don't do these things, you will fall. It's ominous. You do them, you won't fall. If you don't do them, you will fall. That simple. There are believers, maybe even you, who spend much of their life falling and stumbling around in doubt, falling back into the old sins and picking themselves up and then falling back again, living in this depression because they continually struggle with it. And they've been Christians. And then finally they decided to read the Bible. They just happened to open it to Second Peter chapter 1. They realized, oh, there's an answer for this. I don't have to fall. I've stumbled much of my Christian life. I can't seem to grasp how to stay out of my sinful maze. Maybe I should read the Bible. Hey, let me turn to Second Peter. Oh, my, I don't have to live the Christian life in doubt. I don't have to live the Christian life in despair. I don't have to live the Christian life in depression. I can live with increasing godliness. God has given me faith and showered me with abundance. And I take hold of these virtues and I'm diligently practicing them in my own life. And all of a sudden I have assurance of my hope. There's no more doubt. I have grace to live life without worrying about falling. I'm, that has to be part of the precious promises he's talking about in verse 4. If you fail to go forward, you go backward. Failure to increase in these things, to diligently apply these things to your life, 
to play around with sin will never bring you assurance. You'll never have assurance of your salvation. Alistair Begg says, Disobedience and assurance do not sleep in the same bed. Some people want to say, I'm saved. You know, I've stamped my ticket to heaven. I prayed that prayer. Thank God I prayed that prayer. You'll never... I'm on my way. God chose me. Yippee, praise the Lord. I've bought my eternal life insurance. I don't have to do anything else, just kind of coast into heaven. And that thinking comes from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. Disobedience and assurance do not sleep in the same bed. By disobedience, I mean five through seven. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. Make every effort to supplement your faith with. How can I know I'm saved? When I see fruitfulness in my life, when I see godly character in my life as a result of the diligent application of these things in my life. When I see increase in my sight, I'm not blind anymore and I know that my election is sure. That's when I have assurance. Great couple of verses in Hebrews 6 that relate to this. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Charles Simeon said, The exhortation in the text means only that we should exert ourselves. And I only put that there because of of that word, exert ourselves to get an assured sense of our election. God is sure who his elect are. God has given an eternally secure salvation. The Christian might not always have that assurance. Security is the Holy Spirit revealed fact that salvation is forever and you've got it. Assurance is the confidence that you possess eternal life. And the believer who pursues these virtues, the godly character traits, these spiritual qualities we've talked about for a couple of weeks, guarantees to himself by spiritual fruit that he was called, he was chosen by God, and he's sure of it. You walk around with your eyes closed... You'll stumble. You'll fall. The growing Christian, the one who's increasing in character, walks with confidence because he's just secure in Christ. It's not our profession of faith that guarantees that we are saved. You understand? It's not your profession of faith that that gives you assurance that you're saved. It's your progression in the faith that gives you assurance. And the person who claims to be a child of God, but whose character and conduct gives no evidence of spiritual growth, whatever, is deceiving himself, possibly heading for judgment. Let me sum this up. In view of the encouragement 
Peter gives us that these things bring fruitfulness to our lives. And these things bring sight to our lives. These things bring security. You've got God's sovereignty and man's salvation, but he's thrown in some human responsibility here. God calls and God elects. God decrees those who are in the company of the redeemed. But it is clear by this passage that there is something for us to do. To be called into the family of God means to enter a lifelong transition from where we were by nature to where God intends for us to be. And we're going to make every effort, he says there in verse 5. Develop godly character. It's consistent with our calling. And there's no hint in this text that we're able to do this apart from the Holy Spirit. Don't think you can do this on your own. Salvation by works is not the issue here. What is called for is the right determination to live the Christian life in such a way that our election is made absolutely certain. And two things follow after that. First, you'll never fall. Doesn't mean you'll never sin. But you never fall. I don't have this on the screen, I, I don't think. And John says, First John 1, 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. That's not the case. What it means is that since you're traveling through this world, you're traveling on this long, hard journey through this world, you'll never fall out of line. You'll never be left behind. And it's strong. It's a strong word here. You'll never fall. You'll never, ever at any time fall. Two things follow. One, you'll never fall. Second, believers who are serious about growth and develop as development as, uh, in character traits, as godly character, as, as Peter lists here. Not only walk this life without falling, but we arrive at the goal. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you. Not just you take a walk through the gate. No. Richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lavish entrance into eternity. A rich welcome. We need to learn this as we add goodness to knowledge and knowledge to steadfastness and steadfastness to godliness and godliness to brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness to love. Now, verse 4, by which he has granted you his precious and very great promises. That's a promise, verse 11. Isn't it? Isn't that a promise? Wake up. An abundant entrance into eternity. The hope and the reality, and you're able to see it. You, you, you can see it clearly as you walk through this life. 
It gives you sight. You can see it. Peter's point is that a Christian who pursues these virtues would not only enjoy assurance in the present, but a rich, full reward in the end. Do you want that assurance? You want that sort of assurance? You struggle with doubt? At the end of the service, there'll be some elders in the back. They'll greet you, and you uh, during that last song. You can go back and have them pray with you. You struggle with that? Let them deal with you on that. Let me give you two quick warnings. Warning number one. Worship's a problem if you don't know you're saved. Worship's a problem if you don't have blessed assurance. If you doubt you're saved, it's a problem. How can I worship God? I'm not sure I'm His child. That's why these things are so important. It goes back to what Steve Parks shared with us last Wednesday night. It's the heart of the matters, the heart of worship. If the heart is not sure it's saved, you can't worship God with joy. Warning number one. Number two. If you don't have assurance of your salvation, then what this world has to offer is more important to you than what God has to offer. What this world has to offer will be important and you'll grasp hold of everything the world offers you because it's more important. If you have assurance of your salvation, this world won't matter and your hope is on what is to come. What's to come? You'll be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, make your salvation sure. It's a command. Do it. Live with the blessed assurance of your salvation. Know that you're saved beyond doubt. You can know. By diligently striving to increase in these things. Then, you'll never fall. Think about that. Let's pray. We will sing a hymn in a moment and encourage you during that time. If you need prayer, you struggle with these things. If you're a believer, you're struggling with these things. If you're an unbeliever here today, we're grateful that you're here. This is the day of salvation, Scripture says. We pray that you would take the truth of these words and that you would take them and that you would confess your sin and embrace Christ's work on the cross in your behalf this very day. There's no better day. Trust Him today. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, for the truth. We pray that we might diligently apply what we've been commanded to apply so that we might be increasing and growing in our walk with you so that we might be more effective and fruitful. Many times we're not. As a church, we're not. Lord, do your work in us for your glory.
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.